0: When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Hi, everyone. A fantastic new episode of PAX Britannica will start in just a moment. My name is Steve Silverman, and Sam has been kind enough to let me tell you a little bit about my podcast, the Useless Information Podcast. For the past 11 years, I've been recording long-forgotten, highly unusual stories from what I like to call the flip side of history. For example, did you know that famed author Robert Louis Stevenson once gave his birthday away to a girl who was in need of a better birth date? Or that a man tried to corner the U.S. vegetable oil market in the early 1960s and nearly caused the stock market to crash? Or that a dog named Idaho was once placed on trial for the murder of a boy in Brockport, New York? And then there was a New York City man who was so sick of driving his bus route every single day that he simply turned a corner and drove all the way to Florida. His take this job and shove it attitude made him the working man's hero. Or did you know that there was a high school football team in Salem, Massachusetts that played for six years before someone realized that the school never really existed? Well, if these stories sound like they may interest you, Be sure to check out the Useless Information podcast on your favorite podcast platform, and you'll be able to hear these and more than 100 additional fascinating true stories from the flip side of history. And now here's Sam with another great episode of Pax Britannica.
1: Welcome to Pax Britannica. Episode 15 The Trinity of Knaves Welcome back to Pax Britannica. Last week was a special episode with Brandon from the Dead Ideas podcast, but the week before that we heard about what the royal family was up to during the first decade of the 1600s. Queen Anne, whose marriage with James had been founded after a daring sea voyage, had struggled with her husband over the right to guide the upbringing of her children, Prince Henry Frederick, the dashing king-to-be who got war horses and warships as birthday presents, the Princess Elizabeth, an equal to her brother in his love of the arts and her zealous Protestantism, and little Charles, buckworm and possible Archbishop of Canterbury, if he played his cards right, and fate doesn't intervene. This week we will be examining the three members of the Privy Council closest to the King. Two members of the Howard family, Thomas, Earl of Suffolk, and Henry, Earl of Northampton, and Robert Cecil, Earl of Salisbury. Perhaps the most important of the three was Robert Cecil, Earl of Salisbury, from 1605. Robert Cecil was the son of William Cecil, Queen Elizabeth's foremost minister, uh, perhaps equalled by Sir Francis Walsingham, and Robert was, rather confusingly, part of the government at the same time as his illustrious father. He had become an MP in 1584, and was made a privy councillor by Elizabeth in 1591. Upon his father's death in 1598, the younger Cecil quickly jumped into his grave, not literally, of course, but he very quickly took his father's place as the Queen's chief minister and favoured adviser. Like most powerful individuals, Cecil had his enemies. Cast your minds back, dear listeners, to our episode on the Nine Years' War. Cecil had been one of the foes of the Earl of Essex, who had forced him into the political exile of Dublin, and had been the primary target in his failed rebellion. In the aftermath, Cecil urged mercy, and most of the rebels' were spared death not Essex, of course, who was beheaded on Tower Green, earning the questionable honour of being the last person decapitated in the Tower of London. Essex had been a popular figure, and his enmity for Cecil was well known. With his death, Essex's hatred of the hunchback spread widely throughout the kingdom. Did I mention that Cecil suffered from scoliosis? Well, he did, and early modern england was not a society of tolerance outward afflictions were suspected to mirror inward failings and cecil would put up with insulting nicknames for his entire life and career even elizabeth who was incredibly fond of cecil called him her pygmy due to his spine and his short stature As you might expect in this society, his physical ailments did not help his reputation. This was, after all, the era of Shakespeare's Richard III, the famously hunchbacked villain, and comparisons between the unpopular counsellor and the usurping, nephew-murdering king were made frequently in ballads. Cecil was one of the chief organisers of James's succession, which set him quite highly in the king's favour once Elizabeth died. It was at Cecil's home, Theobald's house, that James held his first English Privy Council meeting. With the death of Elizabeth, the Privy Council had automatically been dissolved, but James had almost immediately reappointed all of the English councillors soon after being declared king, and this included Cecil. This was intended to create a sense of continuity, which it certainly did, as well as reward the men who had organised his peaceful accession. It also, as we have already seen, upset those who wanted change, not continuity, and who would act against James soon into his reign. Among those unhappy with the Privy Council makeup were Lord Cobham and Sir Walter Raleigh, and lo and behold, who would end up implicated in treasonous plots. In August of 1603, Cecil was made Baron Cecil of Essendon. The following year, he became Viscount Cranbourne, and then on the 4th of May, 1605, James rewarded Cecil with the Earldom of Salisbury, raising him to the same rank as many of his colleagues on the council. This had the side effect of removing Cecil from the House of Commons, as he now took his place in the House of Lords. This will play a role in his dealings with Parliament in the future. In 1606, he became a Knight of the Garter, which was quite an honour for one raised so quickly into the high nobility. Not one to miss an opportunity for aggrandisement, Salisbury arranged a grand procession from London to Windsor to accept his knighthood, apparently more fabulous and impressive than even James's coronation although Salisbury didn't have to deal with the plague. Salisbury was one of the three men James fondly referred to as his Trinity of Knaves, alongside the Howards, and of the three was by far the most influential and competent. Salisbury was Secretary of State, among other positions, and frequently had the King's ear and affection. It was he who bore ultimate responsibility, for preventing the plots against the king's person. It was he who Baron Monteagle approached with the letter, hinting at the gunpowder plot, and he was one of the judges who condemned the conspirators of the by and Main plots in 1603. James trusted Salisbury implicitly, although he followed in Elizabeth's footsteps and joked about the Earl's height regularly. In 1606, During the visit of Christian of Denmark, which we discussed in episode 13, Cecil hosted both of the monarchs at his home, which was a messy affair as everyone in attendance became extremely drunk. The following year, James traded Hatfield House to Salisbury in return for Theobalds, and the minister had the ageing building renovated. In 1605, it was Salisbury who led the charge of the Privy Council to try and restrain the king's spending, due to causing, quote, great distraction and scandal, end quote. As we've already seen, James had legitimate spending requirements, and otherwise had expensive tastes, and a growing family with their own expensive needs. Salisbury sought a way to fill the rapidly draining royal coffers, Alongside Parliament, Salisbury expanded the tariffs levied on imports and exports, and by 1608 the New Impositions, as they were known, were firmly in place. According to Professor Croft, they raised at least £70,000 a year, only marginally less fruitful than what was on offer from Parliament. This had not been a simple process, however, as London money men are traditionally not keen on new taxes, and in 1606 a merchant by the name of John Bate refused to pay the new charges. He was subsequently arrested, taken to court, which ruled against him and granted Salisbury the legal precedent to expand the expanded tariffs even further, which he did. Salisbury's energy and talent was seemingly endless, and in 1608 he took on even more responsibility. The elderly Earl of Dorset, Lord Treasurer of England, had died, and on the 4th of May that year, James bestowed on Salisbury the position. This was, as Professor Croft of Royal Holloway puts it, an unparalleled accumulation of great office, greater even than his father's position under Elizabeth." Quote. This made him, among other things, lord treasurer, secretary of state, and master of wards. In the governing style of the day, this conveyed enormous monetary and influential perks, and it was very rare for these positions to be concentrated in one person. They were considered too time-consuming, and far too valuable, to be held by the same man. After so promoting Salisbury, James defended himself and his minister from such claims, stating that Salisbury was both capable and trustworthy enough to handle the burdens. In 1609, Cecil opened the New Exchange, built at his expense on land in Westminster. It was intended to divert trade from the City of London to a suburb which Cecil firmly controlled. He was again, on top of his other Privy Council titles, High Steward of Westminster. In this position, he made his own appointments of church and lay officials within his jurisdiction. At the opening of the exchange, the entire royal family, or at least the King, Queen, Prince Henry, Princess Elizabeth, and Prince Charles, attended and enjoyed specially commissioned performances and lavish presents. Salisbury, knowing full well how to impress royalty, gave them a guided tour of the stores and encouraged them to simply take any of the products that caught their eye, and then, for good measure, directly gave them each gifts. As all of this spectacle and generosity, James decreed that the exchange would be forever known as Britain's Burs. As Croft points out, not only was this a compliment for Salisbury, but was one more small attempt by James to point out that he sought to rule over a single Britain, not merely the individual kingdoms of England and Scotland. Step into the world of power, loyalty, With the position of Lord Treasurer, Salisbury gained another avenue by which he could try and reduce the financial demands of the royal family, and wrangle Parliament to support James's goals. He complained to friends that Dorset had left the Exchequer in a chaos of confusion, with debts of three hundred pounds to £400,000. He wrote to James, and was quite blunt that the royal family had to rein in their spending, using historical examples of tax rebellions over the last two centuries to show that the wealth of England, and the patience of its subjects, was not infinite. Salisbury further extolled the virtues of the penny-pinching thrift of Henry Seventh in comparison to the spendthrift of his son, Henry VIII, and he attempted to explain to the king that like England was much wealthier than Scotland, any of the kings of Europe were wealthier than England. While attempting to restrain James's spending, Salisbury tried to reform the parliamentary financial system. The Great Contract, the exchange of some of the king's feudal dues in return for a regular stipend, will be the topic of the next episode. In episode 13, meanwhile, we covered Prince Henry's desire to be made Prince of Wales. Salisbury was eventually convinced of this necessity, but that isn't to say he was overly keen on the price tag. The ceremony itself was, as we saw, incredibly grand, and so correspondingly, incredibly expensive, and that was only the initial cost. As Prince of Wales, Henry received estates from the crown lands and the income from these lands, income that now ceased to enter the king's treasury. Further adding to the financial strain was the prince's need to establish his own, separate household from his father. Largely, this was paid for by his new lands, but the treasury was expected to contribute when needed, especially as the household grew beyond the prince's means. Salisbury complained of the growing cost of the Stuarts, calling them the Ignis Adax, a devouring fire. So why did we see Salisbury support the Prince's desire so strongly? Partly because he was convinced by the Prince's historic and legal arguments. The English Crown Prince was meant to be Prince of Wales, and not being so could only harm the Crown's legitimacy. Making him Prince of Wales added to the sense of continuity in the royal family. But also, this was politics. By supporting Prince Henry and arguing for an expensive investiture ceremony, he gained the support of the Prince to recall Parliament in order to pay for it all. The hope was that the cost would be outweighed by the reforms which Salisbury hoped to achieve in Parliament. In Salisbury's attempts to make Parliament and the King see sense on financial matters, I can't help but see similarities with the Ancien Régime before the French Revolution. There, too, was a monarch who spent wildly and a representative body, the Parlement and eventually the Estates General, with ministers in the middle, trying to get both to see sense. While that and many other things led to a revolution, it would be under a different Stuart King that relations between the Crown and Parliament would become untenable. But that is for a different, far-future episode. Salisbury's seemingly endless advancement was incredibly irritating to one of the Howard Earls, specifically, Henry Howard, Earl of Northampton, and one of the so-called Trinity. Northampton was by this point merely Lord Privy Seal, a title relatively empty of power or of financial value, and his family was centuries old. The Howards practically built this country, don't you know? So, let's look at the Howards. Not all of them, because there are just so many. The Howards are easily one of the most influential noble families in English and British history. Howards have been dukes, earls, viscounts and barons, Basically, filling all the tiers available to patrons of Pax Britannica. Patreon.com slash <clears throat> One of Henry VIII's wives, Catherine, was a Howard, although sadly for her shoulders fondness for her head, she was number five. At the court of James VI and I, there were at least four Howards of note. Firstly, Thomas Howard, the 21st Earl of Arundel, and Charles Howard, 1st Earl Nottingham. Arundel will become much more relevant in future episodes, playing a role in English foreign affairs, but for now also has the title of Sir Not Appearing in this podcast. Nottingham had been Lord High Admiral during the various Spanish Armadas, and if you recall the interview with Sir John Elliot, one of the delegation to Spain to arrange the end of the Anglo-Spanish War. He would also serve on the Royal Commission, which sought a legal way to unite England and Scotland. It is the earls Henry Howard, 1st Earl of Northampton, and Thomas Howard, 1st Earl of Suffolk, which are the most relevant today, however. These two men made up the rest of the Trinity of Knaves in combination with Salisbury. Thomas Howard was made Earl of Suffolk early in James's reign in July 1603, and had been returned to the Privy Council earlier in April. Suffolk got on very well with Salisbury, despite his wife, the Countess of Suffolk, being widely assumed to be Salisbury's and others' mistress. Even James appears to have been aware that something was going on, teasing Suffolk both for being overweight and having a less-than-chaste wife. Her behaviour would eventually backfire on the couple, but for now she was a useful go-between in dealings between the English and Spanish, Salisbury and Suffolk would marry their children together, William Cecil to Catherine Howard, and on the death of Salisbury in 1612, his will would express a variety of his friend's virtues. Between these two of the Trinity, the relationship was pleasant, genuine, and close. Not so with Northampton. Northampton was the uncle of Suffolk, and while he disliked the up-jumped Cecil, there was little real factional conflict within the Privy Council. Partly, this was due to the other Howard's positive opinion of Salisbury, which prevented any obvious Howard factional front against the influence of Cecil. Partly, this was due to the alliance the two had shared during the final years of Elizabeth's reign. Both Cecil and Northampton had played a key role in the succession. Cecil, the Writing of letters, and Northampton delivering them. They had collaborated in distancing the King from their political rivals, including Lord Cobham and Sir Walter Raleigh, a distance only cemented when the two were found complicit in the main and by plots. Between 1603 and 1605, their alliance only grew stronger. Like Cecil, Northampton was rewarded by James for his efforts in securing the English and Irish thrones. He was named to the Privy Council at the same time as Cecil. In January 1604, he was made Lord Warden of the Cinque Ports and Constable of Dover Castle, and later in the year he received his earldom. Northampton joined Suffolk, Salisbury, and the Earls of Dorset and Devonshire to make up the English delegation to end the war with Spain. At the meetings in Somerset House, Northampton is the only English delegate, other than Salisbury, recorded as speaking. He made convincing arguments in favour of freedom of trade and of the seas, based on historic and legal precedent, to counter Spanish claims over the entirety of the Americas by virtue of their discovery. The issue was ignored in the spirit of peace when neither side would budge. In 1605, Northampton was made a Knight of the Garter, yet another reward for his years of service. But truly high office eluded this particular Howard. Possibly, this was personal. Northampton was possibly a closeted Catholic, and when the King was dodging Catholic plots against his life, this was not a positive image to have. Further, In 1605, Northampton appears to have insulted the king and the princes in a speech, or at least James thought he had insulted him, which is really the only measurement that matters. James wrote to the Earl complaining of his, quote, "'Innate hatred to me and all Scotland for my cause,' end quote. When Dorset died in 1608, and Salisbury was made Lord Treasurer in his stead, Northampton was only made Lord Privy Seal, We touched on this earlier, but the title of Lord Privy Seal was prestigious, certainly, but it had neither the political, financial, or influential benefits which the other two in the Trinity now held. As mentioned earlier, it rankled Northampton that the comparatively low-born Salisbury had achieved such heights, while he, a Howard, languished in obscurity. That he was still part of the government of England, one of the few with a king's ear, and a noble with a rich earldom, was small comfort. Nevertheless, for now, Northampton was able to work well with Salisbury to further the king's, and therefore the kingdom's, interests. Likewise, Northampton's disdain for the House of Commons did not prevent him from interacting with Parliament, because, as an earl, he was a member of the House of Lords. Croft describes him as one of the most assiduous parliamentarians on the Privy Council. Of the 71 sittings of James's first parliament, Northampton attended 57, and he was part of numerous parliamentary committees. In 1606 and 1607, English merchants had become increasingly frustrated with Spanish trade officials. They reported that they were harassed fined unfairly and their goods stolen, and the Spanish courts were slow to act and rarely ruled in their favour. The Commons began to call for the return of Letters of marque to see the return of state-sponsored piracy against Spanish vessels and settlements, in order to punish the Spaniards as well as compensate the affected merchants. Naturally, This minor act of war would tear up the Treaty of London signed only three years previous, which neither King nor Council wanted. James sought peace above all else, and the Trinity of Knaves had staked their reputation on it, having been so fully involved in the proceedings. Salisbury and Northampton countered a Commons committee, seeking the return of privateering by making it quite clear that in the fields of foreign policy, King and Council were in undisputed control. It was not for Parliament to decide when England went to war. This was not their only argument, however, with Northampton pointing out that seizing Spanish vessels would only lead to hostilities escalating, further hurting trade and damaging merchants' pockets. The call for war was successfully disarmed. Next week, the narrative continues as Parliament is recalled after three years of absence. Salisbury and Northampton have hit on a perfect answer to James's money troubles, and it looks set to reform England's ancient financial system. After seven years of disappointment and frustration between King and Parliament, can an understanding be reached? You'll just have to find out next week, Thank you to my House of Lords, the Royal Headsman, executed today. Her Grace, the Duchess of Devon, Michelle Gersich. The Most Honourable, the Marchioness of Scullion, Lady Jennifer. The Right Honourable Earl of Somerset, Brendan Bonner. The Right Honourable Countess of Shrewsbury, Elaine Dickens. The Right Honourable Countess of Surrey, Jean Buckley. And the Right Honourable Earl of Oxford, Christopher Grogan. Thank you to all of my House of Lords and everyone on the Patreon page. You're all amazing. It's fantastic. Thank you. My uh, my chosen review from this week is from President Taft's Bathtub from the United States, who says, Just a great, great show. Smart, engaging, fun. Wonderful job by Sam Hume. I, I picked that purely for the name. It's fantastic. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Bathtub, or is Mr. President's Bathtub. I'm not sure how to address you, but thank you anyway. Remember to check out the Useless Information podcast, you can find it everywhere you find good podcasts. Thank you, again, to my House of Lords, and to you for listening.
0: a woohooer, a hand clap a high-fiver. I kind of like the high-five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Group void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
1: As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlaz, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, US vs. China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous US-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.